From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. President-elect Biden will nominate an Obama administration veteran to be Deputy Director for Management. Former Deputy Director of the National Economic Council, Jason Miller, has been leading the agency review team for the U.S. Trade Representative. FCW reports he's been CEO of the Greater Washington Partnership since he left the Obama administration. The leader of the Cyber Directorate at the National Security Agency will be a familiar face, too. Rob Joyce will leave his position as Special Liaison Officer for the NSA in London to take the Cyber Directorate job. FCW reports he was Special Assistant to the President and Cyber Coordinator for the National Security Council in the Trump administration. The U.S. Digital Service is reviewing 500 new applications for data scientist positions across government. Ten agencies issued a joint hiring announcement for the jobs. FedScoop reports they got the 500 applicants the agencies could handle in less than 48 hours. The new shipbuilding plan calls for a rebalancing that favors smaller and unmanned systems, but critics say the plan is still unaffordable. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations and former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. He's writing about the Navy and the hard choices ahead in Forbes. Brian, thanks for joining us. In the piece, you talk about the need to compete with China. Where do you think the U.S. Navy is falling short there? Well, thanks for uh, having me on, Marjorie. Uh, yeah, I think the Navy is, is going to need to do a couple of things in order to address the challenge posed by China. Uh, one, it's going to have to grow the number of platforms it has in order to sustain the kind of presence it needs to uh, counter Chinese efforts worldwide really to expand their influence and territory, uh, including through gray zone activities like you've been seeing in the South China Sea over the last several years. Uh, the other thing the Navy's got to do as part of that growing of the platforms is shift to a set of smaller platforms being a larger portion of the force. So instead of having carriers and uh, destroyers and cruisers be the, the main elements of naval power, we've got to think about having a larger number of smaller ships that are able to spread out the force, uh, but also offer some proportional options to the combatant commanders. Right now, uh, Indo-PACOM, for example, has a few only a few tools available to him to be able to deal with Chinese uh, gray zone attacks. Uh, and if those tools are only uh, aircraft carriers and destroyers, well, it's somewhat disproportionate to the uh, gray zone aggression that they're trying to counter. So that makes the U.S. seem like the aggressor then. Let's talk a little bit about the funding piece as well. What assumptions does the plan make? Well, the plan that the Navy built uh, assumes uh, pretty heroic assumptions about the changing uh, cost of the or the availability of funds for uh, the cost of the Navy. So it assumes in some years that it's going to have 50% more for shipbuilding uh, per year than it does today. Uh, it assumes it's going to have uh, almost double more operations and support funding than it does today. So that that plan is not affordable under any circumstances. Uh, but there's some themes in the in the shipbuilding plan that I hope don't get lost in the transition to the Biden administration. Uh, it does shift to this larger number of smaller platforms. It does rebalance the surface fleet away from uh, kind of a destroyer-centric force like it is today to bring in some smaller ships like the new frigate uh, and the new unmanned uh, surface vessel, which I think could be evolved into a manned vessel that could perform some of the same functions. So there's some good things in the, the study that led to that shipbuilding plan. Uh, I hope those get carried over into a more affordable version, which is certainly possible. And at Hudson, we built one uh, that was an affordable version of that same plan. You mentioned, of course, that the Biden administration is coming in. What's your early read on um, how the Biden administration will address this and, and what changes they might they might want to make? 
Well, uh, they haven't said a whole lot about it, but it is clear that they want to compete with China. You know, they don't want you know, a war with China, obviously, or, or an armed confrontation, but they want to compete. And I think a key element of competing is going to be operating at that kind of subconventional, we call it, level of, of, of escalation, meaning um, dealing with... I dealing with island building in the South China Sea, dealing with um, the actions they're taking against the Philippines and Japan in terms of their own uh, maritime territory. Uh, so you need smaller ships to be able to allow that. And so the Navy's going to need those. I think the Biden administration is going to be interested in those elements of the plan, even if they aren't interested in spending the kind of money that the Navy had originally proposed, because uh, the Navy's trying to keep all their existing high-end platforms while also building these smaller ones. Uh, I think they're going to have to make some trades. And I think the Biden administration will probably be interested in making those trades. As you're as you're thinking about Navy transformation, what kind of timeline are you are you using? Because obviously shipbuilding is is really a long term business. Uh, definitely. And so we're looking at over the next 20 years, the Navy could substantially transform. But even in the next 10, it could, because uh, the introduction of these uh, new unmanned surface vessels, which I think if they had a manned component, could be transitioned more quickly. Uh, a lot of the challenges with the current large unmanned surface vessel is the concern about it operating without people on board that could maintain it or protect it. Uh, so if you put people on board that ship, it could be a lot more viable in a shorter time frame. Uh, also, the frigate that they're developing will be fielded within the next decade. Uh, and in the same time, we're going to be retiring a fair number of destroyers and cruisers of today's fleet. Uh, so you, you'll start to see this transformation of the surface fleet, which is really going to drive the Navy's transformation overall. And you'll see that even within the decade and certainly within 20 years, you could have a very different looking Navy than you do today. Another thing I thought was interesting was you talk about sort of the synergies that you could get between a manned and an unmanned program. Do you think there's an opportunity there um, for cost savings or for moving technology more quickly, um, other things that maybe I'm not thinking about? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Navy can uh, shift to unmanned systems some of the tasks that um, are difficult to do with a manned platform in an affordable way. So if you're sur doing surveillance, uh, you're monitoring an area, you're um, carrying around missiles even, uh, if your job is just to to drive around and carry stuff, well, then an unmanned platform might be a better uh, option to do that with a much lower operating cost. So it could, could change the cost structure of the Navy to shift missions like uh, anti-submarine warfare surveillance or ISR to unmanned surface vessels or air platforms that are just a lot cheaper on a flight hour or ship steaming day basis than the current platforms. And then you keep your manned ships to be able to do the things that manned ships are required to do, like uh, command and control and make decisions on weapon launch. Uh, those are the things that the manned platform should be doing. So there's there's definitely this ability to bifurcate the fleet. And it's not so much manned on man teaming as it is having each platform type do the thing that it's better suited to do. And with just about a minute to go, I do want to talk about that operating cost piece, because obviously that's a, a big part of the picture. How do you think the new administration should be thinking about that as they also look about look at the you know uh, initial cost of a plan like this? Right. I think operation support costs should be the probably the key driver for future force structure planning. And that's true of the Navy as well as the Air Force, uh, maybe less so of the Army, because right now that is the thing that's chewing up uh, most of the, the services top line. So uh, they're spending uh, as much or more on operation and support um, than they are on the procurement of new platforms or the research and development of new ones. So unless you start de designing platforms like airplane, airplanes and ships, uh, and vehicles to be able to cheaper, uh, be cheaper in the long run to uh, maintain and to operate, uh, you're going to end up with a force that's going to continually have to cut procurement to pay for the maintenance of the existing fleet. So operations and support really needs to be a driver of our design in the future rather than something that just sort of follows after the fact. Brian, thanks so much. Thanks, Marjorie.
Up next, riots at the Capitol. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the government can do to stop domestic terrorism. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The FBI is warning Capitol Hill and state capitals across the country about possible riots on Inauguration Day. The lack of preparation for the January 6th riot brings up questions about the government's role in preventing violent demonstrations. Errol Southers is director of the Homegrown Violent Extremism Studies Program at the University of Southern California. Errol, welcome. It's great to see you again. We know now that there was a lot of information, a lot of chatter about what happened January 6th ahead of time. What is this a communications problem? Is this an intelligence problem? Or where exactly is the problem here about information getting from one law enforcement organization to another, Errol? Well, good morning, Francis. Thank you for having me. One of the problems is the fact that a apparatus that's usually in place at the Department of Homeland Security was gutted over the last several months leading up to January 6th. So the Intelligence and Analysis Unit normally collects, analyzes, and disseminates information to local law enforcement partners. That unit was dismantled. The head of that unit was transferred. And so now you have that hub and the wheel of information that would have gone out to local law enforcement that didn't. In addition to that, you had people collecting information in the open source but not sharing with each other. And as we heard a couple of days ago, the FBI reported to the local agencies about a day or two before that a, quote, war was coming. And those, if you will, those warnings were ignored. Is there something that the Biden administration should do beyond rebuilding that office at DHS? Or if that office is rebuilt, will that solve the problem that exists now? I think they're going to have to, as you just mentioned, rebuild that office. I think that's essential. I think that obviously we have some internal problems in those agencies that responded that day from the Capitol Police to some others with regards to uh, members of their organizations who are problematic uh, and, if you will, uh, adherence to the people that attacked the Capitol that day. And as you know, we have the confirmation process of the Director of National Intelligence with Avril Haines today. And I would imagine that how her role and DNI and how that's going to play into the local and state realm now is going to be discussed during her confirmation hearing. One of the things that you said a moment ago is rather troubling to me because you talked about the silos in which these pieces of information existed. It's exactly the same thing that happened after 9-11. The 9-11 Commission took a number of years, looked at these issues, and here we are uh, almost 20 years after 9-11. Sounds like we're talking about the same issues. Is that a fair read on my part, Errol? Well, Francis, that is a fair read, and unfortunately, we keep reinventing the wheel. It's like Groundhog Day. You know, when we had the Charlottesville uh, attack on three, year, three years ago in 2017, we had the same kind of problem. We had intelligence coming from the feds, going to the state. State wasn't sharing with the locals. Locals ignored it. And you all know what happened to Charlottesville. And here we are again with a lack of information. And when the information is collected, it's not being shared. It's not being disseminated. You know, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces have done a fantastic job since 9-11 in most states. And why we have these disconnects when we have these large gatherings that in, unfortunately turn out to be tragic and fatal, 
Why this keeps happening is is baffling. I'm sure there's going to be an investigation and a commission to look into it. And what would that? What has to happen after there's an investigation and after there's a commission? I know it's impossible to predict what such investigations and commissions might yield, but taking action after that strikes me as as the w the reason that we got to where we are today. That didn't happen, correct? Uh, correct. But I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, let's face it. America's homeland security infrastructure changed dramatically after the 9-11 Commission report. In fact, the 9-11 Commission report, if I may say so, is the Bible for the class that I teach on Homeland Security and Public Policy at USC. So I think that's incredible. I think that's important. I think that having knowledge of exactly what happened so it doesn't happen again, you know, security is a very fluid and dynamic process. We don't go through a process, come up with solutions, put it in a manual, and put it on the shelf. That's how we get in trouble. So it's dynamic. I'm not suggesting that this shouldn't have happened, but we need to find out exactly what did happen so we can mitigate those problems in the future. So hosts like me tend to ask ex experts like you all the time, Errol, what's wrong and how do we fix it? What's good? What's working in the area of exchanging information among these various levels and various stakeholders who have it? Well, let's not forget, Francis, we've thwarted a number of plots over the last several years, all the way back to 9-11 from foreign partners, from domestic partners. Domestically speaking, we had the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer in Michigan, as well as a plot to kidnap the governor of Virginia. That's happening because the system works. Information is being collected. It's being analyzed. It's being disseminated. The Joint Terrorism Task Forces are working. But I do want to say this. A vast majority of the information that those agencies obtain come from citizens reporting things that don't look right. So I always advise people, with all due respect, see something, say something. If it doesn't look right, let the appropriate authorities know. We have about a minute left, Errol. What will you watch as the Biden administration comes in, tries to rebuild some of these uh, infrastructure pieces that have deteriorated? I'm going to look forward to a return to these agencies having a sense of normalcy. I think one of the things that's been quite disturbing over the years are the guardrails that have been dismantled as it relates to those agencies. The things I think that they'll have a more transparent process of reporting to the public of what they're doing. And I'm looking forward to more information being shared, if you will, with the American public about how we're keeping ourselves safe and secure, what we're going to do going forward. And I'm looking forward to young Americans being interested in serving their country. I'm where I am today because I serve publicly and I, I, I'm always honored by it. I'm looking forward to people being interested in serving their country and serving their government and helping to keep us safe and secure. Errol Southers, thanks very much. It's great to have you back on the program. Thank you, sir. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says hackers in the SolarWinds breach may have used password spraying or unsecured administrator credentials to get into government systems. The investigation is expected to continue under the Biden administration. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, a former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. Thanks for being here, Ron. What's the latest that we know on the SolarWinds attack? 
Oh, thanks. Delighted to be here. Uh, as near as I can tell, it's pretty much what you said. They managed to get through three separate layers of security uh, and essentially get inside uh, what we thought was a, a fairly protective line. Uh, I'm reminded a little bit of that, uh, that great mid-20th century philosopher, Charlie Brown, uh, talking about losing a baseball game. It's an ice cream cone on the sidewalk. Uh, it's too late to do anything about it, uh, except to look at it and realize that you made a big mistake. Um, in this case, I think we really need to think carefully about the structure. Uh, having been around intelligence failures now since 1983, uh, there are always intelligence failures and policy successes. Um, you know, one of the issues in 9-11 and one of the issues in WMD on Iraq was the idea of the structure uh, and the organization that was trying to deal with the problem. Uh, and I think at this point, this is a good indication uh, of the kinds of problems that we're having. The Russians, and I, it was the Russians, essentially, if you use the analogy of a house, got in a locked door, got beyond the bolt of the door, got beyond the alarm system of the door uh, in the house, and basically wandered through our house, rifled our drawers, took our information, uh, now know who we're dealing with and what their information is. Uh, and they got out the back door, and by the time they did, we just started to catch on. And that is not a system that sustains itself, and it's not something we can continue to do. As we learn that, what do you think is the appropriate response from the executive branch from Capitol Hill? Are we getting a better idea of what that should be? Yeah, I think it needs to be measured. I, I know that one of the responses in this town oftentimes is either fear and loathing, which is some form of public opprobrium, or alternatively, holding a congressional committee. Um, you know, we've got the Cyber uh, Solarium Commission uh, that was had received some additional funding underneath of the most recent NDAA. Let's use that mechanism. Let's get those people back in to take a look at this situation quickly. Um, we're about ready to put another, I think, eight, nine billion dollars into the federal IT system. That seems to be what the Biden administration wishes to do in this upcoming budget. Let's get in there. Let's find out what's going on and let's correct it. Uh, I, I don't think we need any public hangings on this. I really don't want to go through that nonsense again. This is a big problem. We got to get it fixed, and we got to get it fixed now. What do you think uh, the Biden administration might mean for both the investigation and the response? Well, they've actually brought a pretty good group of people in. I mean, you can you can run the list, and Rob Joyce has been brought back up to NSA, uh, and Newberger is handling uh, NSC at this point. Uh, there's been a State Department reestablished, a State Department cyber group reestablished. Um, you've got, uh, you know, even guys like Dave Cohen out at, uh, at CIA who are experienced guys from the Treasury dealing with Bitcoin, blockchain issues, et cetera. So you have the experienced people there, plus whoever becomes the national cyber director. Um, you know, these are people who are experienced in the private sector and in the public sector. I think they bring a lot to the game at this point. Uh, and I also think they realize the seriousness of this. Uh, and I'm sure the Biden administration will find themselves uh, working rather easily uh, with Angus King and others within that National Cyber uh, Commission, because the fact of the matter is that that's the place to go now. And I think those are the people who will bring the, the best knowledge, the best insight, and the best solutions to the fore. Beyond this um, attack, let's talk a little bit more about that Biden cyber team that you're, you're introducing. Um, what do you think will make it different, perhaps, than the, the Trump administration's cyber team? Well, I think I think there was some di there were some disconnects, and and a lot of it has to do with the structure again. Um, 
cyber, as you know, is all over the place. You've got DHS involved, you've got commerce involved, you've got the intelligence community involved, you've got the, you've got the military involved, um, and a myriad of other players. And the central coordinating mechanism, uh, either at the National Security Council level uh, or outside in the civilian sector, just wasn't there. And it needs to be there. This is a whole of government issue. This is a whole society issue. Uh, and whatever you want to say about you know the public sector or the private sector rather having 80, 90 percent of this, it's not their job to necessarily protect anybody but themselves. It's up to government to do that. We have to be coordinated to do that. We haven't been in the Trump administration. And I believe, thanks to that national cyber director and some of the efforts that have been put forward in state and elsewhere, I think we've got a shot at it this time. Not saying that you know there's perfection here, but at least we have a shot at it this time. Sure. Uh, when you're also thinking about this team, what do you think are the top priorities? How will uh, they measure success? Well, I think the first top priority, and, and I know it sounds a little bit funny, is, is let's not have this happen again. Uh, we simply can't afford to keep doing this. You know, this is the third or fourth major break-in of one form or another, if you include OPM and some of the other things in the DOD. Um, you know, we've got programs that are coming into place right now, like CMMC, that will make some of the, you know, the DOD industrial base uh, responsible for insider threat. Uh, if you can show coordination, which we have not had, again, we talked about this just before, uh, with the National Cyber Director, I keep leaning on that because I think that's a key element of this. Um, I also think carefully monitoring the spending. If we are going to spend another $9 billion on IT modernization, uh, then we really need to look at the security aspect of this thing carefully uh, and see how it's being invested. Because so far, it would indicate that, again, the underlying assumptions that we're using going in to protect our systems simply aren't working. Thanks so much, Ron. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For a preview of each newscast, sign up for our daily program guide right now by texting Gov Matters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.